So that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. 
They did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now the man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could not hide him any longer, she got, to, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her attendants walked beside it. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and give you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her own son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.
reading from the letter of Paul to the Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For, the, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and all, all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.
May the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts be all be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I will leave you all to ponder the birth of Moses, which begins the book of Exodus. And the story continues, of course, next week. But the reading that inspires me this morning is the gospel I just pronounced. Last fall, when I learned in the Sunday school that a classmate of my ours had died in Florida, I emailed our mutual friend who wrote back immediately that he was in Brigham and Women's Hospital. And so I went out there and had a long, private conversation with him, during the course of which, and I don't know why, the name of J.H. Newman came up. My friend, in particular, was key being of Irish background, to tell me that Newman had taught college in Dublin. Carl blessed John Henry Newman, who died in 1890, was probably the most prolific writer and most fascinating cleric of his age in England. 
halfway through his long life, he left our mother church, which is the Church of England, as you know, to become a Roman Catholic priest. And most of us harbor no hard feelings. <laughs> a poem he wrote has become one of the hymns in our hymnal. Lead Conde Night, however, was in the previous hymnal and even more popular, I believe, and that one seems to have disappeared. And last Sunday, the recessional hymn was written, talking about the words, of course, by one of Newman's codes, who had the ability to make write poems that the average person could easily understand. In today's Gospel, Jesus says to Simon, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Those words are inscribed in Latin, actually. On the front of St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. And they are an important part of the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. It is a strong pull, these words and the sentences that follow, for people who go over to Rome as they used to say. But remember, of course, that the road between Canterbury and Rome is very much a two-way street. I remember the amazing days of the Second Vatican Council when I had to learn the word humanism, which includes the kind of unity we pray for in the collect of this day. In that decade, we had two consecutive church unity services with St. Mary's in Lynn. And uh, at that time, I was serving as the assistant at St. Stephen's Memorial Episcopal Church in that city. The first time we had a service was in the gymnasium of one of the parishes since closed. But the second year, we had the privilege of going into the church of the parish St. Mary's itself. Nowadays, we seem to be drifting further apart. But in any event, each of us should know the significance of those words in today's Gospel for ecumenical relations. Those words, this Gospel, is the elephant in the room in most inter-church gatherings. Now, when you have years to build the present St. Peter's Basilica, and in that time, 
other people in Northern Europe had turned into membership of various kinds of denominations. And the quote on St. Peter's, and I even think inside about that high altar, was meant, along with that magnificent structure, to make a vivid statement. But we are not here to solve the problem of church governance. I was told how long a homily was appropriate that I gave. I've failed to stay within those bounds. However, today I am going to limit myself to three thoughts based on the gospel I read. Number one, Jesus calls Simon by a new name, Peter, which is the Greek word for rock. And sometimes St. Paul calls him in the Hebrew language Cephas. And nowadays people are starting to say Keeps because that's closer to the letter of Hebrew, the hard thing. And Jesus says in Matthew 16 that the gates of Hades, or in the old translation, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Newman lived in the time of the first Vatican Council that declared the Pope to be infallible. Imagine my surprise when my theology professor said something similar based on the verse that I quoted. Only he used an even more obscure word. He said that the church is indetectable. Which means, I think, not that the church does not make mistakes, but that it will not fail ultimately. The church has a mystical marriage bond with Christ her groom, and Jesus will not file for divorce. Don't tell my superiors, but I have to be honest that I'm sad to see the churches closing. Not least because some of those parishes were places where I used to do what I am doing here today. Almost every day, emails from the Episcopal Church Center in Manhattan bringing news of one lawsuit after another in our churches and dioceses about the, around the country concerning dogmatic schisms and parish actions and physical malfeasance. And then there is the personal toll. Once, a few years ago, I read a biography of a popular Catholic 
priests, probably because they had more what we call charisma in South Florida. And he was outed by one of those tabloid papers in a scandal with a divorced mother who was, had been his one-time Krishna. Eventually, our bishop down there, our bishop, took him into our world. But his friends in his former life told him, why in the world are you going over to a sinking ship? Decades ago, you know, we had a good interfaith clergy group where I live. But even then, the Catholic pastor who hosted us asked me one day to my great surprise, are you aware that the attendance at Mass is not what it used to be? Sometimes it seems that the nave of the church, which means boat, is, like the rest of it, they are afloat in some places. But, if we heed the promise of the Gospel, Jesus assures us, through his disciples, that hell should not prevail. God will sort all things out in God's own good time. The church will not fall. My second point involves how we can help by God's grace alone to make sure that the church does not falter even though we will not ultimately fall. Though Jesus saw Simon as a rock, that wasn't the way Simon necessarily saw himself. For when Jesus told him to cast his net into the sea, in Luke 5, and Simon brought up a tremendous catch of fish, his first words were, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And when Jesus wanted to wash Peter's feet at the Last Supper, according to John, Peter objected, apparently from a sense of unworthiness. When the Cardinal Archbishop of England preached at Newman's funeral, he spent more time talking about Newman's contribution to our Anglican family than he did about what Newman had done for the church of his conversion. For example, I can wear a colored stole today because of the efforts of a group of Victorian members of the church of England that has come to be called the Oxford Movement. But their influence was far more serious and more substantial 
Forgive me as I go down memory lane once yet again, but in my childhood, church, we kept the Lord's Supper at the 11 o'clock service only on the first Sunday of the month, plus Easter. We approached it with a great sense of excited anticipation. This old practice originated not out of laziness, but out of respect. The church wanted to make sure that there were enough communicants present to receive. Even by a time, I remember being the only one to go up for communion one summer Sunday in an Orthodox church. The priest had to order me to my knees for the general confession. That practice in my Episcopal church of my youth seemed to convey that absence makes the heart grow fonder. Now I ask myself, as I nap on the couch before the TV on Saturday nights, whether familiarity breeds contempt. When I finally overcame the barriers of parish favoritism and became an acolyte, the rector gave me a little book published by the very low church, Episcopal Evangelical Fellowship. It contained precise instructions about which candles to light first and which one to extinguish last. But more seriously, it contained suggestions on how to make a spiritual preparation for receiving Holy Communion, including an examination of conscience. With the prayer book we have, the Holy Eucharist, as we now call it, has become frequent and universal, and I have never heard one person complain. But St. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians to examine ourselves first. As we enjoy the fruits of the 19th century Oxford movement and the 20th century liturgical movement, Every one of us, beginning with me, might ponder the meaning and the majesty of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And finally, and lastly, and thirdly, I feel from personal experience that every one of us could use a little of Peter's enthusiasm, some would say brashness, even bravado. The final chapter of John hints that Peter would go so far as to make the ultimate sacrifice for the faith. Matthew's Gospel says, as you must have heard a few weeks ago, that Jesus walked on water. And so Peter said, Hey, I want to do the same thing. Peter reminds us 
to live life abundantly. And there are several turning points in life where we have to take steps and say, yes, even if we don't know completely what is on the other side of the bridge. The first day of kindergarten, the entrance into junior high, and rolling for higher education, deciding to propose marriage or accept such a proposal, raising a family in uncertain times, starting our enlarging a business, searching for a new job, facing the prospect of delicate surgery, deciding to become active in the town, volunteering for or accepting new duties in the parish. Peter would probably have said without hesitation, yes, yes, and yes. I don't care to offend any of the saints in heaven, least of all the apostles. But isn't it true that a lot of times we don't want a new name or even a title as Simon received? But we would rather be one of those apostles that we, nothing, we know nothing about in the Holy Scriptures except for the names they were born with. Three things. The church will not die. We need to purify our consciences in our interior lives. And being adventurous Trump's being anonymous. These are three little thoughts on today's beautiful gospel reading. And I'm sure on, on contemplation you can gain even more yourself. May the example, and for those of us who may agree with this theology, even the intercession of St. Peter Keep us clinging to the rock, who is Christ.
prayers of the people today are form six, which can be found in your bulletin on page five. In peace we pray to you, Lord God. For all people in their daily life and work. For God's wisdom in the work of Charlie, our governor, and Donald, our president. For this community, the nation, and the world. For the just and proper use of your creation.
grace and consolation of his Holy Spirit. The peace of the Lord be always with you.
who lives for the remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith.
Oh, 